Welcome to Enemies of the People. A podcast about extremism in the 21st century. Hello, frenemies. It's me, Maria Norris, and welcome to this bonus episode of Enemies of the People. We're taking a short mid-season break and doing things a bit differently today. I want to introduce you to a new podcast called Politically Enraged, hosted by David Lowther. David is a writer, activist, TikToker, and my friend, and I'm a big fan of his writing and his podcast. In this particular episode, David is in conversation with journalist and campaigner Femi Oluwole about the mess that is Brexit. Femi will also be appearing on Enemies of the People in a future episode, so keep an eye out for that. We're resuming normal programming with episode 22 next week, but in the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this introduction to Politically Enraged. So now, without further ado, here's David Lauder with Politically Enraged. Welcome to Politically Enraged, a podcast that's designed to make you go, what? If you're a left-winger and go, oh, bugger, if you're a right-winger. Today, I am joined by the absolutely fabulous Femi, who I have been quietly internet stalking since like 2016, 2017. Nice. I mean, you know, what can I say? It's taken me like, what, five years to get you to speak to me, but... These things take time. All I can say is the police reports are never going to stop me, Femi. But... uh, (laughs) Today is an apt day to mention the police because me and you have just been discussing the craziness that is Boris Johnson encouraging far-right lunatics to attack Keir Starmer. Yeah, so we had Keir Starmer having to be bundled into a police car because uh, there was a mob around him. They were primarily anti-vaxxers, anti-lockdowners, but they were shouting things that included the slur that Boris Johnson used against against Keir Starmer about Keir Starmer failing to to prosecute Jimmy Savile now. Jimmy uh, Keir Starmer was head of CPS at the time, but had no involvement in the case. So it was clearly a lie, and at least it was misleading at the very least. And and the victims of Jimmy Savile have also come out and said that it's wrong for them to use it. And they've asked for him to re- re- recall those words, which he's refused to do. He's refused to apologize. And now we have this. And here's the thing. Boris Johnson has form for this. Because in 2019, whilst MPs were getting death threats left, right and center over Brexit, Boris Johnson went on the went on the offensive saying, in response to the to these complaints of death threats, like you had, you had several MPs saying things like, "We're getting death threats every day, and when, they, when this happens, they use your words when they're sending these death threats. Please moderate your language." And Boris Johnson's response: "The best way to make sure that all parliamentarians are properly safe and we dial down the rhetoric is to get Brexit done." Now that means if you want to be safe you need to follow my political agenda, i.e. follow my political agenda or die. That's the level that Boris Johnson is, is operating at. So he can't really complain or act like he's above the uh, violence that we're seeing today. One of the interesting things about that, which I don't, I don't know if you have seen me talk about, but Jo Cox was my local MP when she, and she'd like, Obviously, everyone's going to be like, revisionism, but I really liked her. She was fab. I used to get like little leaflets through that broke down what she was doing for the area in particular, which I was very interested in because I'd, I was quite invested in living around Batley and Spen. 
And I, I loved And the day that she died, I was at the doctor's surgery around the corner. I parked in front of her surgery and left. And about 10 minutes later, she got murdered. That was, I mean, you know, you and I have spoken in bits about Brexit. And that was really mm. what, what kind of, I've I got to use the word radicalised me into talking about politics. But I always kept it quite like offline because I felt too dumb yeah. to do it. But as things have progressed, I think people like me have stepped forward to talk about it in you know, in the shadow of people like you. And when it came down to seeing what happened to Joe Cox and the fact that Johnson referenced follow by political agenda or you're in danger, that mm. was that was really overtly a dangerous thing to say. And it's only gotten worse because I, one of my friends who I'll be bringing on the podcast soon, Maria Norris, is a PhD. She's researched what I call white radicalization for a long time and mm. domestic terrorism. And she and I both freaked out a little while ago because Boris Johnson made a speech in Parliament in which he used the phrase, we are united in blood and soil. And anybody... Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Straight away, you know it. Anybody that uses that... Blood and soil. ...is aware of where blood and soil comes from. It is a right-wing dog whistle call to people that are essentially neo-Nazis and those few and far between. So... Mm. This is where we're at in political discourse at the moment, where not only can our prime minister lie, not only can our prime minister obfuscate the truth, he can also reference far-right dog whistles and essentially set rabid supporters of far-right agendas on the opposition leader. So where the hell do we go from here? Yeah, and what you said about about Joe Cox is is obviously painful. And and what I was saying before about how, how the MPs in 2019, we're trying, we're begging Boris Johnson to moderate his language. They were, they were citing Joe Cox. In fact, the successor of Joe Cox's seat was one of the people who were, who was complaining about Boris Johnson's language. And Boris Johnson's response was that the best way to honor the memory of Joe Cox is to get Brexit done. And I looked up the very last thing that that Joe Cox tweeted. It was a pro-Remain tweet. So he's literally using her memory to defy her, 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 her final wishes. And it was one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen. And we've seen, and as you said, both of us got to an extent radicalized by, um, by Brexit. And for me, that was a case of knowing, like I wasn't involved in politics. I wasn't engaged in politics. I didn't really know anything about politics, but all of my family are like, they find it hilarious that I, know anything about politics now and and I have a political platform because they can remember how utterly ignorant I was before. And there's still massive gaps in in, in my knowledge, but it was just the knowledge that, all right, I've studied EU law. I'm working in Brussels. I'm literally stood next to and work on a daily basis with the members of the European Parliament, who I remember voting for in the elections of the EU. So when I hear rhetoric coming from the UK, about how the EU is a dictatorship, when I'm literally stood next to the physical evidence that proves that that's not the case, I know that there is a problem. And if I'm seeing that that rhetoric isn't being challenged properly, then the analogy that I use to describe how I felt from 2016 to 2018, when I really started getting involved, was there's nobody at the wheel. And, and, and increasingly, I think that's what people like myself, people like you, are just realizing that if we don't do it, nobody's going to. And that the people who are currently, well, at least in the driving seat, but not with their hands on the wheel properly, they don't know what they're doing or they're doing the wrong thing. I think 
the thing that's confused me for a long time and like it's like every time you tweet about it it rages me afresh like there was never any kind of like diplomatic goal for brexit i feel like you know it was all about sticking fingers up at the eu and the thing that was it you that tweeted i think it was yesterday about no one could have predicted a pandemic except here is an article that said if there's a pandemic we will be in a worse position and everything from the start of the pandemic highlighted that we'd made a huge mistake things as 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 i use the phrase little obviously i don't mean it that way but Johnson ignoring emails from Brussels saying, well, you know, we're going to create a conglomerate for ventilation distribution because mm. you're going to need them. And him ignoring the emails for equipment that was going to save people's lives. Like, that's where the clock started for how many people Johnson has directly or indirectly killed. Because if we were short of ventilators, that's because he refused to enter into any kind of pact with the European Union over some kind of misplaced pride that I still don't understand. So so that attitude of, of anti, anti-collaboration that definitely has uh, a body count atta- attached to it, but it's the clock started right from the referendum as to, as to, as to the resources. Because if you think, A, the moment we voted, well, we voted in inverted commas, voted to leave the EU, we voted to make it so that EU citizens would have fewer rights in the UK than anywhere else, given that EU citizens in 2016 made up 5% of the UK's population and 10% of its doctors. EU immigration and EU citizens were mathematically, statistically, keeping the UK alive. They were propping up our NHS from a statistical basis. And we told them essentially to bugger off. And so right from there, you can see in the terms of the percentages, and this is on the Parliament website, you can see that the percentage of um, EU citizens in our NHS as doctors and nurses, it was gradually rising up until 2016. And then the doctors ones suddenly started to drop off a little bit and nurses went down significantly. And we saw a 90, what was it? It was a 90% drop in nursing applications in 2017 from EU citizens. So we've already, we and given that, during the pandemic, the biggest, when you look at the economy, the reason why we had to shut the, the economy down was to protect the NHS, to avoid the NHS being overloaded. Now, the, re- the reason for that wasn't because we didn't have the hospital space. We had enough hospital space. What we were lacking was the staff to man those hospitals because we had the Nightingale hospitals that were set up. We just didn't have the staff. So the significant blow that the NHS took in terms of staffing numbers, again, there's numbers attached to that. On top of that, you've got the absolute colossal resource wastage that is Brexit for those four years. Because after 2016, the focus was on Brexit. It was on negotiations with the EU, took up all the parliamentary time. You had Dominic Dominic Robb in 2017-2018 pointing out that they would be hiring roughly 17.8 thousand civil servants to deal with Brexit. Now that's 17.8 thousand individual salaries. Those could have been doctors nurses, people to man the, man the NHS. And that's where, that's where our resources went for, the, for, for, the, for those years. If we'd have spent all the resources of Brexit investing in the NHS, which is pretty much the country's national priority, always has been, then we would have done better. We objectively would have done better in this pandemic, if not for that. Instead, it went on Brexit. And it's not like we weren't warned, as you said before. We were warned about Brexit, that Brexit might be bad for a pandemic. But also, we were just warned about pandemics in general, because in 2016, we had the Cygnus report where they basically tested the NHS to see how it would do in a pandemic, and it failed. And instead of spending the next four years focusing on improve, increasing NHS capacity, buying PPE, which is one of the things that was mentioned as lacking in that report, 
We spent that time buying portable toilets for and, and trialing traffic jams in the M20. That's where that's where the body count really started. It's quite funny as well, uh, because all of that fits in with what I've done for the last decade. I, I don't know if you've seen, like, I, I am fully burnt out of my career after a full decade of NHS recruitment. I've done it in the NHS and I've done it adjacent to the NHS. And one of the things that's just put me off is the new climate towards new entrants. You know, like the 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 stuff I've had to do to prepare for Brexit and the embarrassment I feel whenever I have to email a candidate saying, can you please provide me your pre-settled or settled status or tell me what visa you're on? Because these are people that used to be able to come here borderless, issueless, and just work yeah. to save our lives. And now yeah. I have to ask them for extra paperwork. And a big part of it is obviously this whole, you know, like I've just exploded into politics and I feel like I can I can do things, whatever, however small, to change things for the better. But a big part of it is that I'm completely divested of interest in trying to recruit for the NHS anymore because we shot ourselves in the foot with it and it is a really difficult job. Plus, I have seen so many people I care about burn out. And worst of all, you know, at the start of the pandemic, a doctor passed away and Piers Morgan tweeted about it. That was one of my doctors. And the fact that there were right-wing pundits weaponizing his death to talk about these heroes laying their lives on the line. And all I could think was, where's the goddamn PPE? Where was the preparation for this? Like, that's someone that I've known for nine years who's died, and you guys are all throwing his name around as if it's a a point-scoring tool. And that really bothered me, and that sat on my conscience quite heavily since then because it was was our job he was working in when that happened. Fortunately... Mm. We haven't lost that many people, but another of my doctors was on a vent for like eight weeks. How he recovered from that, I don't know. But I've like, in a very real way from my job, from my desk, from my home, when I've been working at home, I have seen the cost of Brexit on this pandemic, both in staffing, in morale, in how it's actually affected the NHS. And it has changed fundamentally the way that I think about a lot of things, because this country spat in its own its own mm. face and yep. calls it a win you know and i think that's that's where i come down on specifically on the nhs supply for for brexit because it was just such a stupid idea from that very very unique standpoint and a million other ways but you know that's the way that i've seen it firsthand so and it, and it was the it ultimately come that came down to a problem of, of experts because I kept repeating the line because as of as of about they took a while to get really loud about it. So I can forgive people for not really knowing this in 2016. But by 2018-ish, you had every single medical body on the board screaming that Brexit was a bad idea for the NHS. The Royal College of Nurses, the Royal College of Midwives, the Royal College of GPs, the Royal College of Radiologists, and the British Medical Association, which represents 150,000 doctors across the UK all saying that Brexit was bad, but the BMA specifically saying that a no-deal Brexit would be a catastrophe. And they're the ones who said that a, that a no-deal Brexit would make us more vulnerable to pandemics. And this is what we've seen. And ultimately, Brexit was... It's, it's, it's easy to say that it's about a failure of trust in experts, but I think it was more a case of a lack of trust in certain politicians, because each politician presented their so-called experts. Boris Johnson would point to the odd fringe um, economist who would say that Brexit could be good, but ultimately 
it was about trust and it was it was about the fact that we have an incredibly unequal country we have one that we have that one of the most unequal countries in, in in Europe because the disparity between rich and poor is pretty much the worst here in the UK than it is anywhere else and often when I speak to people in London about well why did how Brexit happened many people in London who voted to remain struggle to understand how this could possibly have happened at least they did in 2016, 2017, 2019, because they didn't see the referendum happening. They didn't see it coming. And so I always say, this is the story I tell every single time. Imagine if you're 50 years old, you, when you're 11 years old, your dad lost his job because Margaret Thatcher closed the shipyards. You've lived in Sunderland or Redcar or, or Hull your entire life. You've seen nothing coming to your area. You've seen more investment in London every single year. Millennium Dome, London Eye, an underground tube system. There's no underground tube system in Hull. I'll tell you that for sure. And you've seen, you voted Labour your entire life because you hate Thatcher. You hate what she did to your area. And you, uh, but Labour has no incentive to do anything for you, not from a political standpoint, because they're always going to win your vote. They have no objective reason, political incentive to help you. And the Tories have no incentive either because they're never going to win your vote. And so you very much feel like politics has left you left you behind. It doesn't really matter what you do on polling day. So politics doesn't feel like it's for you. And the one time you get this opportunity to actually make a difference, one time where your vote might actually make a difference, and you might be able to actually give this system that has left you behind a real shake and say, hey, we're still here. The person telling you to vote for status quo is David Bloody Cameron, the same person who put you and your family through eight years of austerity. Now, I, despite studying EU law, knew nothing of Northern Ireland. So my, my vote on that particular topic was completely uninformed. I did not know Northern Ireland was even in play when I voted because I didn't understand the Good Friday Agreement at all. And so it was just chance that I happened to be on the right side of things. And even with my, 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 my law degree, my EU law expertise and working in Brussels, when I saw that £350 million a week on the, on the bus, that shook me for a second because I thought, oh, I know we do give money to the EU. Is it possible that that money could go theoretically to the NHS or not? Therefore, maybe I'm on the wrong side on this. And it took me a second to think, oh, hang on. I know what it means if we're outside of the single market in terms of the extra barriers to trade and all the damage it does to the economy. I also know that, we, we, that that money goes towards common projects, whereas if we do it by ourselves, it'll cost more. So that money's being used in a more efficient way on our, for our own benefit. So I actually know that that number is misleading. I knew that because I studied EU law, worked in Brussels, and I'd had two years of experience. If you don't know that stuff, and you're just faced with the reality of David Cameron is telling you to vote for status quo, and you need things to change, you vote leave. I fully get it. The difference comes when you've seen four years of chaos, and you still support this plan. That's where my sympathy drops away. I have 100% sympathy people who voted Brexit in 2016 because leavers and remainers were not experts in EU law. Now we have to start being a lot more harsh on people who still think this is a good idea because the logic just isn't there. You're seeing the damage all around you. I think that's the whole point, isn't it? Like it, it was a strange standpoint for me because I am a Northern English guy. Yeah, I'll, I'll be like I'm. So, I always acknowledge my privilege. I managed to go to uni. I was working. I mean, my, my pay was crap because I was working for the NHS at the time, and I had five hundred managers. But I I knew where I stood, and there were a lot of things that made me staunch remainer from the start. You know, like I am 
so crap at maths. Like it is funny. It is so funny how bad at maths I am. So I had a friend who helped me understand the maths of what would happen if we left the EU and I trust him. And he got me really invested in what the EU actually did for us in terms of, you know, fiduciary remuneration, blah, 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 all the big words. Mm. But it was also just, I think one of the things that I found really confusing was that all of this ire and anger that, that people that voted remain had was directed at the EU and these unelected bureaucrats finger marking that for anyone that can't see the videos. But that to me, it was never about any of that. To me, there was just this pure anger at people who had nothing to do with our lives and no anger for the people that did. Because, you know, you, you mentioned austerity, which, you know, seems to be a permanent fixture in our lives now. The, mm. the EU didn't implement austerity on us. The, the Conservative government did. And they said that they had good reasons. Well, it's been 12 years now. Even before the pandemic, it was 10. Why, yeah. why, why? Basically, why is there must be things that they can be that they could have done to redistribute wealth, which they just refuse to do. And then when you look at it, it is literally two weeks since Dominic Raab went on TV again and said, "Well, we're still cleaning up the mess from the last Labour government." And I was like, "What? What? What are you doing? Either what did they do? Did they just drop a bomb in your department before they left? Or are you just that crap that after a dozen years in Parliament, you can't sort out the mess? Like, at some point, you are going to have to stop blaming Labour for your yep. mess-ups. And this is where we're at. There's so much blame culture that that frustrated me because when I saw people angry about these unelected bureaucrats, I actually researched the laws that people were talking about that they were so unhappy about. And there was, was there in in a grand total of the like 20 that I researched, one was pushed through against our judgment. See, the UK government queried and the EU just amended it to placate us. And the other ones we all frigging agreed with. So I'm like, yeah, those nasty unelected bureaucrats putting one law on us that means that we have to have economic toilets in our houses, the bastards. It was like, (laughs) yeah, okay, the, the evil plan to stop us wasting water, which ironically is now full of crap anyway because the conservative <laughs> poison our bloody rivers so it's all just yeah. seemed like madness for so long yeah it's for me the core problem with well the core problem with the notion of of brexit as in whether it's going to be good or bad for the uk was with the very concept of the single market that's why a lot of of every almost every speech i gave would have been to do with that because the core message of Brexit was taking back control. We want to control our laws. We don't want our laws made um, by Brussels, by other countries, etc. We want to have our own laws by ourselves. And th- that was sold on the idea that we could do that without any economic consequences, that, we could, that it was a win-win situation. There's no reason why we need to follow the EU's rules. And the reason why people were able to believe that was because most people, if you ask them, even to this day, if you ask most people, what is the single market? They'll say, well, it's a free trade area, free trade area with the EU. And that was actually the definition that the BBC gave um, up in October 2018 when Laura Koonsberg tweeted the BBC's glossary. I had a look at it, saw their definition of the single market was wrong, had a go at Laura Koonsberg, and they changed it two days later. But that thing had been up there for five months. Now, here's the thing. If the EU doesn't exist. You have 28 different countries making their own laws independently. 
uh, which means if you wanted to sell your products to twenty to those 20, uh, 27 countries, you'd have to manufacture your products potentially in up to 28 different ways or make it compatible with 28 different sets of legislation, which means a hell of a lot of paperwork, which would send your marginal costs through the roof, increase your prices and lower, and lower standard of living people in your area and, and around. If the EU does exist, then you have 28 countries making laws together. So there's only one set of laws to follow. And you, anything you make in, in your country is automatically legal to sell in any other country. It means you can lower your prices and it improves standard of living. Obviously, cost of living, kind of an issue right now. And that's what the single market is, which means we gain from having similar laws to the rest of the EU. But because that notion was left out of the dialogue, people heard take back control and thought that they could do that without any consequences. That was the core problem with the idea of Brexit in and of itself. I found, so there's, there's two things. Like, first of all, that whole notion made me laugh anyway, because it was so clear that, yeah, okay, those things were were up for grabs in, in the sort of like bottom line way that everything that, that revolves around Brexit was. But we still had to manufacture to what the EU wanted. It's not like we could make things cheaper because we still had to match the standards that they wanted. So we were basically going... So we've still got to do what we were doing before to sell to you. Plus there's all this crap we've got to do now. And I was just like, none of that makes sense. But the thing that has been impressed on me a lot the last week, because obviously, you know, all we've talked about the last few weeks is cost of living crises and, you know, which ways it's coming to get us and everything. Hmm. And I broke that phrase down in my head because I've never done it before. And it, it's, it really repulsed me to the point where I wrote a blog post about it yesterday. Think about the actual word in there, the cost of living, like the cost incurred to not die. And mm. now we are in a very real crisis because of so many different things that our government mismanaged because they were too busy just lauding it over the fact that, they, that we'd left the EU, you know, that... There was, there was no gas infrastructure. They haven't capped any of the, the prices, which other EU, well, other, not other, but EU countries mm, have done. Yep. And all of these myriad things, plus, I mean, like, I go off the price of milk. Every freaking time I go to the supermarket, there's another 20p on buying milk now. And I'm just like, this used to be cheap. And surely yep. if we're buying milk that's produced in the UK from UK farmers, why is it more expensive? Like, wasn't this one of the Brexit benefits? And then you look back over some of the crap that's been in the media. Do you remember Jacob Rees-Mogg talking like a couple of years ago about how champagne would be cheaper? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. I remember reading it and thinking, who are you aiming that at? Like, this is mm -hmm. the point. This is the bottom line of it. People like him get the benefit of cheaper champagne. Whereas we can't buy food because it's getting more expensive. And yeah. the like I think that there's always been a massive classism element in Brexit. And I also think that xenophobia was a huge part of it. And I struggle with like sort of separating those two and talking about them separate. But one of the biggest things that I am obsessed with, and I am like I try I research all the time to try and like unpick how the economy ran throughout the pandemic because I have a very strong feeling that Johnson wanted to throw off restrictions, not for some kind of libertarian idealism or anything like that, but because he was desperate to make sure the economy didn't just explode because he saw how much it was shrinking post-Brexit with this crappy deal and was like, 
we're literally going to have no money. Like, do some kind of scheme to get people to go and eat in restaurants because we have no money. Like, do something. Mm. And so it was just throwing off restrictions and going, freedom for everyone because we're the best. And it was like, no, you're just trying to cover your tracks on the fact that we are, our finances are decimated. And here is the proof, like, coming to roost yep. at last with, like, all of these crises happening at once, not to mention the fact that he's an absolute gobshite to coin a phrase my dad would use. <laughs> well, we had the worst recession of any G7 country in, in 2020, um, which means that we've, take, we've taken the, the deepest hit of all of this. And it's you just can't ignore the fact that we're the only country that's chosen to go backwards in terms of international trade. And we ended up as the only country with the worst recession. And as for what you were saying about the, the cost of food, what Jack Monroe did um, recently in terms of the prices of food, that was shocking. The extent to which it is so different for rich and poor, that the price difference in terms of if you're shopping at Waitrose versus shopping at Aldi, basically the poorer you are, the poorer you're going to get. And the richer you are, the less poor you're going to get. It's insane that you've seen prices triple for the um, lower end of foods and where, whereas they've gone up barely a couple of percent at the, at the higher end. And that notion of the elitism behind Brexit, which was somehow portrayed as being pro-working class, it's, it's, it is, it's what makes it the biggest con in history because you had people like, you, you mentioned Jacob Rees-Mogg. I remember he Gave us, he gave an interview on LBC where he was talking. He said, I, I've spoken to my, to my friend uh, James Dyson or the other, the other day, and he was telling us how his business is actually doing, doing very well, but some businesses weren't doing so well, like to blame Brexit. That, that's actually a failure of poor management. So, large multinational corporation doing well, small businesses, as 25% of stopped selling to the EU since we left the single market, not doing well. That's their fault. Yay, large multinational corporations. That's his attitude. And you have Brexit being pushed by people like Nigel Farage. Now, he was speaking to people who desperately rely on the NHS because the poorer you are, the, more, the worse your mental health is likely, more likely to be, the more dangerous your life is in terms of, in terms of diet. You're more, you're more likely to be reliant on the NHS the poorer you are. And you're also, you haven't got the option to go. You also need a larger state because you need, because you need, you need, you need more support from the state because of how, how unfair our system is. And he was speaking as somebody who is on record as saying we should move to an insurance-based system of healthcare. So he's speaking to people who desperately need the NHS and he wants to destroy the NHS. He's, obvious, he's also said that he wants to have a smaller state. He frames it as people should be able to make their own choices. He means he wants to have a free market that basically leaves poor people behind. He's the exact opposite of what the people he claims to speak for actually need. And that is the elitism that we see. And as I said, it is these smaller businesses who struggled the most with Brexit. You have the, because the Federation of Small Businesses have said that 70% of small businesses have, have had problems selling to the EU, 25%. And that was just as of last, last uh, March. Had stopped selling altogether. In terms of businesses in general, half of UK businesses have either stopped or have had trouble doing it. So, and it is a small one because if you're a large multinational corporation, if you're a large corporation, you have the uh, the margins of terms of your profits to be able to to be able to afford the extra cost that you're seeing at the borders. If you're a small business, you get wiped out, and that's Brexit. Yeah, it was sold as a victory for the little guy. I think it just blows my mind that. If people start, there was still want to see it as a success because 
it's caused pain to the people amongst us who needed, like you said, needed the attention the most and have, have got it the least. And that, like, it's funny that you bring up Nigel Farage as well. There's, there's a million examples of that man's hypocrisy, but the most blinding one recently, since 2016, that man weekly has insisted that we adopt an Australia-style immigration system, which is incredibly strict and limits migration, limits freedom of movement, imposes strict limitations on what you can do as someone that has moved to this country. You may never settle permanently, etc., etc., etc. Then Australia implements the Australia-style immigration system against someone that wants to come in and doesn't want to follow the rules. And Nigel Farage... <laughs> flits away in his murder vehicle to be like, oh, well, this is ridiculous. Look at the state of this Australia stopping people from being free. And it's like, that's what you wanted for us, you absolute goose. You cannot, you you cannot be so dim as to campaign for that for years and then turn around to us and say, look at them using their immigration system. I would, like, I literally sat there and just was like, that man does not hear himself. He must just like walk into a room and just decide in that moment what he's going to come out with today because he just doesn't have any kind of moral fortitude. And and that's where I get so mad in particular with these pundits that we always talk about, like Hartley Brewer and all the rest of them. They'll they'll push these narratives of, I, I'm disgusted by this and I stand against that. But all it takes is six months and suddenly they're on the other side of the debate. Mm-hmm. Like yep. Julia, Hart- Julia Hartley Brewer is a, is literally a proud turf. She wears the t-shirt that says woman, adult, human, female. And yet she was bullying uh, the MP. I can't remember which MP it was who, who was talking about the need for accessible childcare in parliament. Yeah. I think it was, it was start with you. And it's like, okay, so you don't like that type of woman, but you also apparently don't like this type of woman who 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 wants to bring their child to work and still have a career and be a mother. And then the worst thing that she's done, which I don't know if you saw, there was a glamour model who put like she was in an article saying, you know, it's like I really love my career. I love, you know, I love kind of interacting with people and, and getting fame the way that I do. But I have to say, like the amount of men who send me unsolicited dick pics. And Julia Hartley Brewer screenshotted this woman's page and posted it and was like, look at this. She expects it. And it's like, yeah, do you know what that is, Julia? Do you know what it is when you say you 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 should expect these things if you dress like that? That is rape culture, love. And that's the kind of person that we allow continuously to speak on a large platform to people. And people buy into it because there's a lack of critical thinking. If you look at their morals, they will say, I'm pro-woman, but then promote rape culture. Or they will say, we need an Australia-style immigration system. And then the minute that that system is employed, they're like, it's disgraceful. So we allow people with no morals and no kind of transparency to talk. And I mean, look at the ultimate form that's taken in that now we have a populist prime minister who tells far-right lies in parliament and only has his position because he pushed the lie of a successful Brexit that would mean that we'd be rolling in cash and making laws to have two-day weeks and earning 500,000K. Yep. And that Instagram model was Jess Davies, who's a, who's a mate. And when I saw that, I was it hit me for six because, like you said, that is rape culture. And there's a person on the other, on the other end of that. And as you said, they will push narratives and then they immediately flip when the reality hits. And the Australian style system, that's... That one was 
I found that one almost amusing because like if you, you can't push for an Australian style border system for four years. By the way, there was a TV show called Nothing to Declare, which mm. is which airs in the UK, all about Australia's system. And it has pretty and I, and I joked about this at the time, pretty much is something like Megan from Texas flies to Australia. She's got an orange in her suitcase, ends up held down and waterboarded for three hours. That's what America, Australian system is like. And then the moment that, uh, and that the EU started doing checks on our stuff, and there was a story about how they confiscated a sandwich or something, all the Brexiteers were up in arms, like, how dare they control their borders? Like, mm, you promoting this exact same thing. Um, or sometimes they'll just go quiet. Like Nigel Farage has not mentioned fish in like two years. It's insane. And yeah, it, it's just, it's the U-turns and the stuff that they just are willing to just abandon because, hey, we've already done the damage. We've already got the vote that we needed and we don't need to, we don't need to continue with the lie anymore. We don't care if we're found out because, hey, you've already voted. And one of the biggest ones was Nigel Farage in terms of when he said, between now and June 23rd, we're going to make one very simple point. When Theresa May says that it's difficult to control immigration as a member of the EU, She's, she's wrong. It's not difficult. It's impossible. There's nothing we can do to stop unlimited numbers of people from EU countries settling in this country and enjoying the same rights and privileges as all the rest of us. And then I went on, a, on, on his radio show and I said, so remember when you said that Article 7 of the EU Citizens' Rights Directive says that if you want to come here without a job, you need to have sufficient resources not to become a burden on the welfare state and have your own comprehensive medical insurance. To which he responded, in theory, if I may, you're right. In theory, there are restrictions that can be placed under EU treaties. Yeah. How does that square with there's nothing we can do to stop unlimited numbers of people settling in this country and enjoying the same rights and privileges as all the rest of us? He knew, he knew, he knew that he was lying, but he said it anyway and continued to support Brexit. Not to mention, I think I cannot wait to have another discussion with Nigel Farage about Brexit because he's going to mention the democracy thing. And he failed. He lost the. He was already on basically non-existent ground to begin with. But the the thing that really says that Nigel Farage does not give a crap about democracy is when in 2019 he had a caller on his show who said he was worried that there might be a second referendum on Boris Johnson's deal, and Nigel Farage said, "And you know what, Colin, Remain wins that referendum and wins it every single time," which means he knew that Boris Johnson's deal was less popular with the British people than remaining in the EU. And then he stood down candidates of the Brexit party in order to help Boris Johnson push through a deal he knew the British people did not want. That man does not give a crap about democracy. I don't think that any of them do, realistically. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I talk a lot about reform and, and a lot of things that I think are just like so, so vital for the future of the democracy of this country. Because I... I I don't even think it's hanging by a thread. I think that it's like somewhere crawled up in the shower drain right now, like mm. desperately open. I don't turn it on. It it just seems like that that like when you have opened your eyes to the fact that our democracy is is a sham, you suddenly realize how like this is why I have created a podcast called Politically Enraged. It's why I've created a blog that I call Politically Enraged. It's why I sit reading book after book after book about politics because I'm like. I am a tiny person who who lives in the north and and you know like has a tiny platform online and anything I can do like the one person I can reach the five people I can reach the 10 people I can reach and go this is unjust and you must stand up for yourself. Yeah. That is in my, my own infinitesimally small way 
and attempt to claw back control from these people who don't live our lives. And it's that that bothers me, you know, like I, like I, no matter what happened, I would have done what I've done, which is learn Greek and become really invested in Greek culture and everything. And now I, I can't, I can't easily move there. Not just because we're disparaged across the EU because we spy in their faces, but because there's visas and settlements and mm. money involved and paperwork and all of these things. And that was taken away from me. So on a base and selfish level, Brexit pees me off because it took away something that I actually saw as a viable life plan. But when I also think of it the converse way, you know, I, I had a Greek housemate for four years and some of the stuff that people used to say to him, <laughs> like he used to come home from work and tell me that people would be like, I can't understand you. Why do you work here if I can't understand you? Oh, oh, how, how well do you speak Greek? Like mm. when you go on holiday to Greek, do you do anything other than learn how to go, Kalispera and a beer a parakalo, because that's all people <laughs> care about. And you know, yeah, there's just, there's a very, very weird mindset that I think, that the Leave campaign capitalized on, which is English exceptionalism and the fact that we're the greatest and we're being tied down by the EU. And I feel like it's like the cooling of the tectonic plates. Were we a big industrialist nation once? Yes. Does anyone ever want to explore the why? I've covered this a lot. Like when you actually look at the long-term damage that like slave labor has left on the UK, all of these people forced to do the hard work while people sat in their back gardens drinking tea and doing science for fun. That's why we progressed as a nation. That's never addressed. And all of these things, all of these things going back hundreds of years have led to this pinnacle moment where we were told by an idiotic prime minister, make a decision about whether you want to stay in this union or leave it. And because we thought we were so great, because we've always been super hardworking us, we were going to leave and make a success of it. But the fact is we've floundered, not just because we have an inept clown in office, not just because he's hollowed out what could have been a reasonable right centre cabinet and filled it with absolute geese, but mm. because we are, we are as a nation used to people doing shit for us. And now that now people aren't doing stuff for us and we're like, why is life so hard? And I cannot wait, in a genuine way, I cannot wait for people to slowly, slowly, slowly realise what we have actually done to ourselves and each other with Brexit, because it will come. Yeah. The thing is, like, the British exceptionalism, unfortunately, it's the fact that they, it, I cannot believe that the narrative just wasn't, wasn't challenged. And it was, because it's so obvious the flaw, because you have people consistently saying, they need us more than we need them. They need us more than we need them. And when you just look at the maths of that, the UK population is a sixth of the size of, of the EU's. The UK economy is a sixth of the size of the EU's. They are 27 countries. So for, to say that, you're saying that 27 countries with a combined economy six times the size of ours need trade with us more than we need trade with them. Just, just do the maths. If we lose trade with 27 countries, they lose trade with one country. To believe that, you have to believe that the UK is better 
than 27 countries combined. And that British people are inherently better than people than people from the European continent. You have to believe in British superiority. That's the only possible explanation. And yet that narrative wasn't challenged properly. And it's yeah, and it wasn't challenged properly by politicians on the left or the or journalists on the left. And it it's occasionally people will, will will accuse me of being arrogant in terms of the way I talk about politicians or the way I talk about, about media journalists. But some of this stuff was so simple to put to bed, and they just didn't for three straight years. And that's either due to cowardice because they wouldn't step out from behind Jeremy Corbyn, or because they didn't have the technical expertise to do so. Even though it was simple, objectively, Brexit was a question about international relations. That is not a difficult statement to make. And if it's about international relations, it's about treaties. So what was our treaty before Brexit? The two, the two treaties of the European Union, treaties that create the European Union. What's the treaty? What, what did leave mean? Remain means those treaties. What did leave mean? Leave meant any other relationship with the other 27 countries of the EU. That's what leave actually meant. Now, that relationship could be anything from no deal at all to a Norway sell deal where we're still basically in the single market. That's the range that Brexit could possibly mean. That's what leave actually meant. And you had 17.4 million people voting for that. And it was clear pretty much from day one that they were not agreed on which sort of leave they wanted, which means what you, which means objectively what leave meant was, what, what the referendum was, was a 48% approval rating for our current relationship with the EU and nothing said about the new one, nothing at all, which made it essentially like signing a contract that had four words, leave the European Union, and then on the other side, write the terms of that contract four years later and claim to have your consent. Utter madness. Now that's Brexit explained in less than 90 seconds. They had four years of 24-7 news coverage with constant debates and couldn't get that simple point across. It's unforgivable. Madness. I, I feel like Brexit was sold as the impossible dream because it was going to bring us all of these things. And... It, I, I just don't think it's brought us anything good. But this conversation's been quite deep and dark, so I'm just thinking. Because the hope? Do you know, this is, well, this is something I've never actually heard from you, because obviously, yeah, what's the hope? But I'm curious, mm-hmm. because I, I dabble in theoretics a lot, but I don't really know what the answer to this question is for myself. But you're obviously mm-hmm. way more knowledgeable about this than me. So what's your ideal for the future? Like, where do you see it going in a positive direction, how could you see us like remedying this shit? So my ideal future plan, here's what happens if everything goes to plan. And that is Labour commits to delivering PR within 12 months of taking office. Mm -hmm. Now, given that Labour, the Labour members are like 85% pro proportional representation of changing our electoral system, changing our votes, changing our votes. And we do have a movement within the union. So they are heading that way. That is a realistic possibility that's, that's, that's on the horizon. That's the first step. If Labour is a, officially a pro-PR um, uh, party, then that means that they have the ability to do an electoral pact with the Lib Dems and Greens, because the Lib Dems and Greens will know that if they vote for Labour in those key constituencies, it will make all future votes for the Lib Dems and Greens actually count. So it's in their interest to do that pact. And it's in Labour's interest because PR will effectively, even if it doesn't change much for, for Labour, because Labour was on... 32% of the vote and 33 and 31% of the seats. So it doesn't actually change much there, but it would essentially transfer seats from the Tories 
over to the parties that Labour could actually work with. So both side, both all the opposition parties have an, an, an incentive, and it's, it's in their interest to do this. If that happens, given that in all but three elections since the Second World War, the majority has voted for parties to the left of the Conservative Party, i.e. Labour and the Lib Dems and the SNP and Greens have had the majority over 50% of the vote, they will win if they work together. That's just going to happen. On that, but things aren't solved then because you still need to deal with the Scotland issue because Scotland was thoroughly screwed up because in 2014, they, 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 would have, they potentially would have voted to leave the UK, but David Cameron threatened that if they left the UK, they'd have to leave the EU. And then two years later, dragged them out of the EU, which means that Scotland effectively voted to stay in an EU country twice within the space of two years and yet still left. You cannot describe how I, I fully understand it is entirely legitimate for them to have another independence referendum. My yep. only hope is that we can have reforms, i.e. fulfill the promises that were made to Scotland in 2014, i.e. Devo, Max, Max, plus, 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 whatever Scotland wants, and have a referendum between a better union and independence, because I believe that will result in us, in us staying in. But obviously it's on us to make that better union happen. So I'm not, I'm not going to, I won't begrudge Scotland of leaving before we manage to make that happen because we've screwed up pretty badly. Yeah. However, I would say that it's in Scotland's interest to wait on the basis that if whichever way it goes, if either England is in the single market and Scotland isn't, or Scotland's in the single market and England isn't, that single market barrier between England and Scotland, that damages both, both economies. So it's in everybody's interest for us to move as one. So there's that. But yeah, on that basis, you then have a given that we have consistently voted for parties to the left of the Conservative Party since the Second World War, you will have that progressive majority being reflected in Parliament. And then we all the changes that we need to make in terms of progress on all the issues that we all care about can finally be addressed. Sounds good to me. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like it's a bit of a pipe dream, but that's it's so like just just to throw something out there. Like I I get called like I, I get called it all the time. Like it's only yesterday someone called me a shill and a fake and things like that, and mm. it always makes me laugh because I actively lose money on on talking about these things and hosting my hosting my blog and things like that. And the reason that I am fine with doing that is because that's how much I give a shit about the future of the UK and I don't really see in a world as divided as ours where we've got Russia banging on Ukraine's door and everyone's frightened of China and the way that they're just monopolizing economies and the threat of the far right really hammering the U the US and everything that's going on. I have, I never understood Brexit because I never saw separation from a big entity as a good idea, unless that big entity was, a dictatorship, which yep. the EU is arguably not. And so for me, I talk about these things because I give a damn about a future where we see people and things united again. And I think a big step for that, hopefully within my lifetime, is going to be potentially looking at how we could get back into the EU. I don't know whether that will happen. I don't really think about it because obviously there's more pressing issues that we need to deal with now, now, now. But I think when it comes down to everything that's going on, for me, just aligning ourselves with our neighbors is a damn good start because, yep. you know, that there's that phrase that comes out all the time, which is there is more that unites us than divides us. And it's incredibly true. And that can be everything from just being human beings to the fact that 
there are very real dictatorships out there that we we need to fight we need to fight against and we need to stop and we're never going to do that if we're too busy sticking two fingers up at the eu with one hand and then holding out our passport to go to creep for two weeks with the other and yeah so i i know where i stand which is i was always a staunch remainer i i'm a hopeful rejoiner for the future i know it's not going to happen for a long time i just hope that even just in the uk we can sort our house out because the way that we've screwed over scotland the way that we pissed off wales is absolutely inappropriate and it really is past time that english people in particular learn that we are not the nexus and we have to work together with people because that's the only way that we will ever succeed yeah yeah that that is exactly it and i do i know that there are a lot of parts that have to go together to um get to where where i suggested and that would involve that would ultimately lead to us rejoining the eu because i said that progressive majority is there in 2019 the majority over 52 percent voted for party committed to a second referendum so that desire to rejoin is borne out both in that referendum both in that in that election and in all the polls that we've seen since and as as for the issue of well it'll take a lot of work to get to that point for me that doesn't really trouble me because a as martin luther king says the arc of the moral universe is long but it bends towards justice and given that we have a country that consistently votes progressive ultimately we will end up having to get there having to end up in the right place it will happen it's just a matter of time obviously want that to happen as soon as possible Uh, also just i'm confident on the basis of Similar to the Avengers situation of Doctor Strange, there is only one option. This is it. This is the plan. And ultimately, people will see that because it is the only way we get out. If party, if the parties on the left continue to fight each other, we don't win. The Tories mm-hmm. stay in power. So they have to work together. And the only way they work together is if they trust that they won't have to keep working together because that's not real democracy. So that's... Um, that requires the proportional representation to be on, on, on the card so that they can have a proper a proper democracy afterwards. Yeah. Perfect. Well, this has been a rather illuminating chat. Thank you very much for sparing <laughs> an hour of your very precious time to talk to tiny little me. I am very appreciative of it. I'm just happy that we got to the end on a more positive note because we got, did get quite dark there. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like I was talking and my brain was going... You might want to cheer up a bit, David. Like the like <laughs> podcast cause record number of suicides. I'm just like, I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> Mind you, who knows? But no, it's honestly thank you so much for joining me. I've been wanting to actually speak to you IRL for a really long time, and we still don't get to do that because yes, it's a But still, yeah, we have we have to sort that out, and, ho- yes. and hopefully, half of us won't fall ill the day before. Fingers crossed, you know, let's just, I mean, let's let's not say it too loud because there is someone out there that actively curses me with these things. Do you want to, obviously you're not going to get any new followers from this because everyone that follows me must follow you, but would you like to tell everyone your socials? Femi underscore sorry on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Oh no, on Facebook, I'm Femi dot sorry, but yeah, uh, Facebook underscore sorry in most places. Fabulous. Well, again, thank you very much for joining me. And uh, thank you everyone for listening to Politically Enraged, the podcast that's supposed to make you shake your head in sorrow if you're a lefty and shake your head with terror that you've been discovered if you're a right winger. Speak to you again soon. That was Politically Enraged with David Lowther. And that was David in conversation with Femi Oluwole. David is on Twitter at Davy Moo and Femi is on Twitter at Femi underscore sorry. Please check out their social media and make sure to go check out 
and subscribe to Politically Enraged. Remember, next week we are back to normal programming with episode 22 of Enemies of the People. If you're enjoying Enemies of the People, please tell everyone you know. Rate and review us, download more episodes, subscribe and follow. Your support means the world to me. Remember, you can also support us over at Ko-fi and join our Frenemies book club by becoming a monthly supporter. Our next meeting is on Saturday the 5th of March and we will be discussing C.N. Lester's amazing book, Trans Like Me. You can find us on Twitter at EnemiesPod. I'm on Twitter at Maria W. Norris. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week for more Enemies of the People.